Thank you all for coming out today. I'm honored to be speaking here again, and thank you to Dr. Resta for being kind enough to invite me here for another time. Um, second time speaking, third time attending. And uh, I just want to say thank you to all the veterans in the audience, too. You know, without you, none of us would be here today. So thank you. So the original title of my presentation was going to be called The Spectrum of High Strangeness Experiences. Um, but then after working on it for a while, I realized that my CIA handlers wouldn't approve of my other presentation, so I'm going to be talking about that, which I seem to be involved a lot with lately, um, and since the beginning of time, apparently. One that I spoke about at the last Mysteries of Space and Sky conference in 2019, and you guessed it, my new presentation, Back to Black, in pursuit of the MIB and other non-human entities. Um, was created just for this conference. I, I just love hearing about these types of experiences, as I'm sure you all do, um, and I just can't seem to escape them altogether. But um, we're not gonna be talking about, you know, the conspiratorial men in black. We're gonna be talking about some downright eerie experiences with just some strange people. And these are not the people you would encounter at your local Walmart. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Justin Bamforth. I'm an investigator, a researcher, and an author of The Unexplained, whatever you want to call it. Contrary to Dr. Resta, I am not a man in black, but I do write extensively about it. And some of you may have heard me on Coast to Coast or, you know, the plethora of other paranormal programs out there. Um, but tonight, we're here together in one place, and, and it's awesome. You know, a lot has changed since the last Mysteries of Space and Sky conference. Um, perhaps the biggest one, though, is in how our government has finally come out and acknowledged that, yes, UFOs, or excuse me, UAP, really do exist. You know, that's truly a remarkable step from where we were in 2019, right? Now you and I have a little bit more credibility when talking about this subject, um, or so I hope. But there is still one thing I think we're a long way away from, and um, that's truly understanding the phenomenon and what it all means. The complete spectrum of high strangeness events and how, and how they relate to one another. Or more importantly, how each one of these experiences shapes us and changes our way of thinking. Um, because I believe at the heart of the uh, mystery is the experiencer themselves. Uh, sometimes more so than the actual experience. And nestled in some of these experiences are, of course, the elusive men in black. You know, what I'm going to share with you today are some of these really eerie cases um, that I've been working on uh, since after releasing my book, The Spectrum, back in 2018. And some of these cases I'm still looking into. I'm still um, in touch with the, the, uh, the people and interviewing them. Because, you know, as you know, this mystery is, is like an onion, right? It's just there's so many layers to it and depth to it that just like peeling an onion, you just want to, like, cry because it's just so complex and involved. But um, what I'm going to share with you, there are no clear-cut answers here, uh, just more questions. But I hope that it presents at least some additional things for you to consider, um, some of which don't exactly fit the narrative or the classic stereotype of what we often wish the phenomenon would be. Um, and keep in mind, there is a cost associated with looking into this stuff. It takes a toll on you mentally and sometimes physically. Um, I had to take a break from this topic after writing the spectrum. Strange things did occur and it became rather unsettling, although sometimes rather ridiculous and outright comical, like this pair of dark sunglasses that appeared in my car one morning. I have no idea how they got there because they did not belong to me or anyone else um, that sat in my car. And I'm very particular about where I place things and I'm extremely organized and aware of my surroundings. But these glasses 
you know, they just showed up. Um, how did they get there? Was it a calling card from the MIB, who are often known for wearing black you know, eyewear? I reached out to my good friend and fellow investigator, Mike Brown, about it, and he was uh, equally amused. Check out the text, the text exchange we had just one day prior. Uh, Mike talked to me about the newest podcast episode he had been working on. His comment, hold on to your butts, prompted me to respond with this picture, which Mike's comment referenced in the movie Jurassic Park, and notice the sunglasses on Jeff Goldblum's character as he sits in a vehicle. Now Mike responds with doctor, which as you know in the movie, there are two male doctors, Dr. Ian Malcolm, played by Jeff Goldblum, and the main protagonist, Dr. Alan Grant, played by Sam Neill. Well, these shades on Dr. Malcolm look eerily similar to the ones that showed up as I sat in my vehicle the very next morning. Not to mention the Foster Grant insignia on the inside arm of the sunglasses. Is this proof positive of the MIB? No, it's just merely a little coincidence. But it's those little things that make you think in this field and help with your wardrobe. But if you think too much about a strange thing, the strange thing tends to man itself, manifest itself rather in, in even stranger ways. Uh, my dad told me a, neighbor, uh, a story of his neighbor whose son saw a copy of my book sitting on his mom's table. Now this man, Jonathan, apparently picked up the book and skimmed through the part about the MIB. Then later that same afternoon, Jonathan had a sighting of three stereotypical MIB in a field about 11 miles away as he drove back to his house in the Quakertown, Pennsylvania region. He thought it was odd to see three well-dressed men standing in a lonely field, but when he took a second look, they had vanished. The very next day, as he was on his way to work in the morning, he drove by the same field again and saw them again. Uh, so he stopped the car to take a photo, knowing this was extremely peculiar. But of course, the three men vanished again without a trace before he could ever snap a shot. Sometimes people reach out to me through my website, normalparanormal.org. There's a contact form on there where I receive all sorts of interesting reports of not just the MIB, but all different types of unusual experiences that people can't easily categorize. Those are the reports I want to hear about. The downright odd and unusual ones. Uh, sometimes even just mentioning this topic brings its fair share of trepidation, especially to the experiencer who writes to me. Like with Julia from New Zealand, a wonderful woman with a plethora of strange experiences, none of which involved these adorable sheep. This is a photo she sent me recently. But some of Julia's experiences involve objects that disappear right in front of her eyes only to reappear in other parts of her house. In fact, it happened so frequently that uh, she began a logbook of it, which to me is very helpful because it allows me to better identify patterns and see possible connections based on things like time of day, state of mind, or other factors that could contribute to these phenomena taking place. This is a picture of Julia's kitchen. Now, she too is very particular, and she has to be. You see, these things happen so frequently that she has to be extremely mindful of where everything is and keep track of every little thing just to make sure that she is not losing her mind. Towards the bottom of the photo here is her black lid sugar jar that went missing for three days then reappeared in the same spot. On the sink you can see a pair of purple rubber gloves. That's where they always live, she says. Well, another time those purple gloves disappeared and then reappeared moments later. Behind the sink is the hand soap that also momentarily disappeared, then reappeared while she stood at the sink. Those are just a couple, but here's a better example of what she used to deal with on a regular basis. One day, as she's preparing breakfast, right here in this kitchen, she's making some toast with marmalade and coffee, and she puts the, uh, the coffee in the microwave to heat it up. Now the microwave goes off, does its beeping thing, you know, say it's done, 
and she recalls placing the toast down to attend to the microwave. And she distinctly remembers saying to herself, quote, the toast is beside the toaster, end quote. She told me that she remembers being stressed in this moment, for if she put the toast down, she wouldn't remember where it was later. So as she places the toast down, opens the door to get the coffee from the microwave, she turns back around, and lo and behold, the toast is gone. It is now on the opposite side of the kitchen to the place where she was going to go next with her drink. Now, let's stop there. This is significant because of three things. One, the stress factor, which I believe plays an integral part in a lot of these experiences, and I think it's overlooked. And two, this takes place in an instant as her back is turned. And three, the toast is in the direction of where she was about to go next. Now, she told me, without that strong mental note, she couldn't have been certain that the toast actually moved to the coffee area as opposed to her just being forgetful about its placement. This reminds me of what Colonel John Alexander once alluded to, this being a precognitive sentient phenomenon, uh, meaning it is always a step ahead of us because it knows what we are going to do even before we are going to do it. And herein lies the real power of the trickster element. Now, Julia's case is an extraordinary one with many different components from the paranormal to UFOs, so much more. But one aspect does tend to stand out to me, like I mentioned earlier, which is stress. Um, like so many others I've interviewed, it would seem that stress is one of these elements that plays a part in high strangeness events. And what happened to Julia right after she reached out to me certainly didn't help with her stress levels. You see, a few days after initially contacting me through my website, she described this event. One with her son and a pair of odd individuals at a nearby park who exhibited classic MIB tendencies. Now, these strange people encounters, I tend to put in the same bucket as the MIB, even though they don't necessarily don all black or look like the classic ones we're all accustomed to. But Julie and her son, um, they're out walking their dog, and her son is deeply troubled with something. So, you know, Julie is trying to calm him down, reassure him everything will be okay, when they see these two young women jogging very, very slowly. And each time Julia and her son stop, these two women stop. When they start moving again, the two women start moving again, almost mirroring them. It's a little peculiar. And Julia told me that these two women stood unusually close together while jogging. In her gut, she felt like this was odd, like something was wrong. Their legs were moving faster for the slow pace they were moving forward. And it appeared that they were gliding since their heads weren't bobbing up and down. It was like jogging on the spot in a way, but not quite. She said that neither she nor her son had ever had that unsettling feeling before. She also felt like she was drawn to look at them for whatever reason. I hear this with a lot of UFO reports, this sudden urge or desire to kind of stare off into the sky just before a UFO manifests or to go to a random location, you know, on a whim, and then something bizarre takes place. In the days that followed the event with the joggers, they felt very uneasy, and they, de they described there being like a black cloud over the two of them. She thought it was because she reached out to me and my involvement with the MIB, and it took her some time to get over. You know, they didn't even walk the, day for a few, or walk the dog for a few days either. It disturbed both of their sleep, and it felt dark in their home the whole week following that incident. It was a very spooky time. This reminds me of another event that was shared with me by Gary Maddox, a resident of the Whirl, which is a peninsula located predominantly in northwest England and a small area in North Wales. It's just across Liverpool to give you an idea. Well, Gary, who you see right here, he loves to hike, 
and he does so as often as he can. In fact, he and his partner, Julie, walk the Scottish Highlands extensively. Lucky them. Uh, well, one day, the two of them are enjoying a hike through Inverpoli Nature Reserve, which is located in the far northwest of Scotland. More specifically, they are at a part of the reserve called Stackpoli, which they had climbed a number of times before. Now, uh, what Gary described to me was that this part has a distinctive path going up it. And there's a clear light line of sight up and down the mountain until you get up to the ridges and you go back around, uh, around the back of the ridge area. And it goes up about 2,400 feet high and offers these incredible, stunning views of the nature reserve once you're at the top. Well, this is in either February or March of 2013, and at that time of early spring, the area is incredibly remote. Gary tells me that during the summer, it can get busy, but when they were there, it was incredibly quiet, clear, and it was just lovely. Um, but Gary said that when a person climbs this particular mountain, they can look back and see their car uh, in the lot from the trail, and their car was the only one there on this particular day. Now, it takes about 90 minutes to get to the top, and then you can move about on the ridges. So there are about 80 minutes into the climb or so, when out of nowhere, another man in his late 60s to early 70s suddenly appears right behind them. The man is moving up the mountain at an incredible speed. Now, since Gary frequently stops to look at the views, he says he's very aware of his surroundings. But this guy, he said, just appeared out of nowhere on the path behind them. Being a semi-professional footballer in the past and in excellent shape at that time, Gary said he used to run up mountains as part of his training. So the first thing that startled him was um, this other man's speed and how he didn't show any signs of exhaustion or being out of breath. In fact, Gary told me that there was no way that this older man should be able to scale the mountain at that speed without being completely exhausted, especially for his age or what appeared to be. But that's not the strange part. This man had no hiking or walking attire of any kind. He's just wearing sandals with no socks, which Gary thought was incredibly bizarre to be up on a mountain and at this particular time of season. Oh, but wait, I forgot the very, very strange part. Gary noticed the man had no ears, just a smooth head and teardrop eyes. He told me it sounds really corny, but he swears this is what he saw. And as the man moved past them, he just has this calm, serene expression on his face, like his movements require no effort at all. Which would make sense, because Gary also noticed that the guy was barely lifting his legs, his feet almost gliding along the trail. The man didn't say anything or make direct eye contact with them, just continued up the trail and over the ridge. He presumably went down on the other side of the mountain, but they never saw him after that to confirm. The whole incident, it, you know, it didn't last very long, but it was just so bizarre. Now, even though this strange man had very distinct features that stood out to them, they didn't feel anything negative um, about his presence, contrary to what Julia experienced. Rather, it was quite the opposite, Gary told me. He said the whole encounter, it was just peaceful, serene. It was non-threatening in the least. Now, for what it's worth, Gary did mention that his partner, Julie, speculated it may have been Gary's spirit guide, since she's into remote viewing, spiritual healing, etc. But he isn't 100% sold on that explanation. I don't know if I am either. What I do know, though, is that this description of the strange man seems to fit the bill of the odd movements and motor skills of these strange individuals, and this incident with Gary Maddox reminds me a lot of the other older man that showed up at the doorstep of Niagara Falls hotel manager Shane Sovar back in 2008. Shane was cleaning the gutters of his house when this old man appeared out of nowhere, just smiling up at him. This man was very much interested in Shane's house and claimed to be the original owner and builder of his house. 
But later on, when Shane's sharing this description with his neighbors, um, and then I later find out that uh, Shane's wife also shared the description with some more neighbors, they all confirmed that the man that Shane was describing had died 15 years prior. Now, the reason I bring uh, up this case, or bring this case up again, is that when the old man left, Shane said that it too looked like the man was gliding down the walkway, barely even touching the ground. Now, after Shane's encounter with his old man, um, all sorts of weird activity uh, took place in his home, from poltergeist activity for several months, and ultimately leading up to a direct visit by the men in black on his random, random day off, who came and freaked out his employees at the hotel, Shane's life was never the same after his strange person encounter. I touched on this case in my talk last time, um, but for those of you who are new here, um, I've written about it extensively in my book, The Spectrum, so I'm not going to take time to focus on it. If you have any questions, just come see me afterwards. Going back to Gary Maddox, though, he drives these big fuel tankers for a living, and he's out on the road usually all day and night. He's never seen anything strange, no strange objects in the sky, no UFOs or UIP. But on the what the heck do I put this into, uh, Gary did share an interesting encounter he had when he was just 18. Apparently he saw a large plasma or shaft of white light uh, just shot up from the pavement of his house up into the sky. He also had a very interesting doppelganger experience, which is one aspect that I think holds a connection with all these strange people encounters. When Gary was 11 and in primary school, he and his schoolmates went to a school-sanctioned camp run by the municipal authorities in the countryside of Tint Whistle, Derbyshire. Now, Gary was just out exploring the area there by a woodhead pass um, along the edge of the field when he swears that he saw his father, his mother, and one of his brothers there in the family camper van. You know, he's not thinking anything odd at the time. He's like, oh, it's my family. So he runs toward them uh, to greet them, but they just drive off. And later on, he's asking his father, um, why did you drive off when I was approaching you? And his dad said, that wasn't them. Uh, we were never there. Now, Gary knows it was the family because uh, the van had a very distinct look to it because they had hand-painted it uh, different blues with coach paint. Now, again, I don't know if there's any significance to this account, but you would not believe how many extraordinary doppelganger reports I receive from witnesses to these strange people encounters. That's why I ask the question nowadays, because you just never know. Another eerie experience with uh, strange people uh, centers around Nevada resident Bob McCauley and a busload of high strangeness at Cornerstone Park in Nevada. Uh, the park was an ideal spot for this mobile game that he frequently played at the time, you know, uh, Pokemon Go. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with it. Um, on December 5th, 2018, at approximately 10 a.m., Bob is driving through the parking lot of the park en route to play his game when he took note of a what he described as a brand spanking new white bus that had been parked in the middle of the lot. Now, this vehicle was an oversized travel bus with blacked out windows and no markings on it. About 20 to 25 young men, late teens, early 20s, they got off the bus in a rather sluggish manner, as he described. Every single one of them was wearing a backpack and was casually dressed. A few had what appeared to be a notebook or a laptop in their hands. First thought I'm thinking is, okay, this is just a school event with tired students, you know, what have you. Um, but Bob parked his car at the end of the lot, about 50 yards or so from the bus. And then he walked another 10 yards uh, further uh, away from the bus to continue his mobile game. And as he glanced back to the men, uh, he noticed them just milling about in a small area of concrete where the bus remained with its, open, with its door open. And, you know, they were just talking with one another, at least from Bob's perspective. 
In the opposite direction were four park maintenance workers. But Bob tells me they weren't the usual Henderson, Nevada Parks and Recreation crew that Bob was accustomed to seeing. He said these workers wore dis nondescript, plain, drab work clothes, boots, and orange hard hats, and they were supported by two olive green utility trucks, which didn't have the usual Henderson, Nevada logo on it. Um, instead, he observed this different, like this different emblem on it, um, and he, he thinks it may have read Forestry Service in black bull letters, but he admits that wouldn't have made much sense considering that they are in the desert. Um, but again, he's not looking for high strangeness. He's just playing his game, right? So he's not going to fixate much, much on this. He's just continuing. And then in a few short moments, the bus passes Bob on its way out of the park. There's no more people on board the bus. At this point, he looked up to see that there weren't any license plates on this bus, neither on the front or the back. Um, which at that point he thought was rather odd. But then when he noticed where the, uh, the men were, he noticed that the men were now all lined up in single file formation, one directly in front of one another. But they were lined up so close that it appeared like they were touching or almost touching. And, you know, it's a strange visual sight, but you know, okay. Two of the maintenance workers with the forestry service approached Bob. One of the maintenance workers kept an eye on the men from the bus, while the other, a young female about 21 years of age, started to initiate a conversation with Bob as, as she approached him. And at first, Bob thought, all right, the, the woman's just being friendly, right? But her conversation quickly became more direct questioning. What are you doing here? Where do you live? Where do you work? And Bob just answers them instinctively while glancing behind him at the lined up men. And he eventually remarked um, to her, he said, uh, you know, don't you think this is odd, you know, what's happening here? And the woman briefly acknowledged that seeing those men lined up so close together was a little unusual, but she didn't seem too, uh, too interested. She was more interested in keeping Bob's attention on her, almost like a distraction. At least that's what he thought. Bob looked back again and the men, um, at the men, and the young woman suddenly, out of the blue, asked for Bob's phone number. Now, for Bob, this comes quite unexpectedly because you know, she's in her early 20s and he's, you know, 65, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But, um, you know, for him it was a little, you know, a little shocking. And he's like, why would she ever want my number, he thought. And as the woman kept her gaze on him, the request, you know, again, it immediately diverted his attention from the lined up men. And then in that moment, Bob thinks, something's not right here. And um, so Bob responded with, uh, I don't think that would be a good idea. And as Bob immediately turned back around to the lined up men, they're all gone. They completely vanish. And he's like, you know, where'd they all go? You know, as he stood there in disbelief. No other vehicles or buses could have taken them since anything would have had to pass by Bob first since he was at the far end of the lot. And since the bus that, had, that they had gotten off of already, it already left, who would have retrieved them? And how on earth could they have done it so quickly? So, Bob turns back around to ask the young woman, and she and her maintenance workers, they're already in their utility trucks, and they're, they're fleeing the area. And now, he says, given that they are at least 50 yards from their trucks just a few seconds ago, uh, he couldn't believe what had just taken place. It would seem like everyone had just suddenly hightailed it out of there for whatever reason. So Bob's like, what the heck? He's standing there by himself. He gets in his car, he drives around the park. He's looking for any sign of, of you know, the men or anyone else for that matter. He didn't find a single vehicle there, nor anyone else to be found. Now, Bob has told this story uh, just to a few people for obvious reasons, right? Um, one of them was his coworker, Tom. Much to, much to Bob's surprise, when Tom said that a similar thing 
happened to Tom's friend two years prior, but in a Colorado park. Only instead of two maintenance workers, there was just a solitary man in his late 50s to early 60s asking these personal questions and wearing you know, fine old clothes, as it was described. And again, in an attempt to distract this, you know, Tom's friend from glancing back at the people lined up in single file, um, you know, he's taken, taken off guard and then he looks over and those single file men are all gone and he looks back at the old man he's talking with, he's gone. It was like the exact same event, but two years prior to Bob's incident. I knew that if I could get in touch with this other uh, individual, Tom's friend, uh, it would not only support Bob's experience, but maybe reveal another pattern in the phenomenon. So, you know, I tried to get a hold of Tom. Um, he seemed rather uneasy at first. Um, I asked if I should contact him later, and he said that would be better. I tried several, several times after that, and he never returned my calls. So, um, you know, what can you do? Uh, two, weeks, um, two weeks prior to Bob and I talking about his encounter at Cornerstone Park, he met another woman there uh, who had just moved into the complex right across from the park. And this woman mentioned seeing strange floating balls of lights the size of basketballs in the park late one night from her apartment window. These lights would split up, then they would come back together, they would take off into the sky. Uh, was she merely half awake or you know, just seeing a hallucination? Well, whatever she witnessed also cast a reflection on the water below. Now, Bob has never witnessed anything to that extent, although he has seen a cloaked aircraft out in Chicago that looks something like uh, the movie Predator. You know, with that shimmering um, type of effect, which is also common in some of these UFO reports. But this aspect of parks is another common thread with these strange people encounters. You know, I have several reports of these encounters taking place in these parks, and it leads me to wonder if there's some sort of connection. Um, it makes me wonder if maybe there's a connection to, to David Pilates' research, you know, with his missing 411 uh, books. I don't know, but if you're listening out there, David, um, you can contact me and we can chat about it. Oftentimes, though, um, people aren't even aware that they had an encounter with an MIB until after the fact. So I asked them to think back to any bizarre interactions they may have had uh, with peculiar people that just stood out as unusual. That's why I've started to drop this whole MIB moniker and just go with strange people encounters instead. And one of these involves Tammy from uh, Pasadena, Texas, who had a set of extraordinary experiences with not just one, but two close encounters involving glowing balls of light that affected her both mentally and physically. Um, I'm not gonna get into the case details right now because it's, it's pretty extensive but, um, and due to time, but in short, Tammy, she was on a break during her work shift and she encountered these objects at a very close proximity, so much so that she could just reach up and touch them. And this resulted in a possible missing time episode. Um, she claimed she was only gone a few minutes, but her coworkers said that she was gone almost an hour. In fact, they were ready to send security out just to look for her. Well, Tammy then had a second uh, sighting in her backyard, which, re which resulted in a sort of a gold-like substance falling out of the craft. Um, and her cat, who was outside during the experience, um, who may have accidentally come into contact with this, uh, this substance, then started losing weight, and its hair started falling out. And, um, you know, it, it just, yeah, it was really weird. Um, the cat, you know, started acting all weird, and it, then the cat just disappeared. And they couldn't find it, even though it had been microchipped. Now, two months after this, Tammy developed viral meningitis, which she described to me she had experiences like headaches, nausea, vomiting. Um, I'm no doctor, but these sound eerily similar to radiation poisoning. Kind of makes you wonder. 
Um, now, when I asked Tammy to recall any strange experiences beyond that, uh, more notably with strange people, she had to think for a minute. And then it occurred to her that, yes, there was one such experience that took place at a motel not long after these UFO events, maybe just a few weeks after her second sighting, but before she was hospitalized. She and her daughter and her son-in-law had taken a trip to Corpus Christi, and they stopped off at either a hotel or motel for the night, and she remembers it being very late when they, when they got there and checked in, and once they got settled in, it was about midnight or so, or one in the morning, no, no one else was around. Well, Tammy decides to walk to the motel office to find out what breakfast, uh, what time breakfast will be served in the morning. And as she's walking out there, she notices a man standing by himself by the pool. He has presumably Asian facial features and stands very tall and lanky. And she describes you know, six, five, six, six. His hair is very sleek, almost uh, slicked back. But probably what startled her was that the man was extremely fair skinned, almost pure white in color. And this is according to her description. And he was dressed casually and nondescript but it wasn't his startling appearance that stood out to her in this moment so much as it was the man's voice um, as he returned her greeting when she said hello um, tammy said that it, it was almost as if you were talking through a mach uh, like a machine that reverberated um, or at least that's what it sounded like to her and she she really struggled to describe it exactly but she elaborated that it was like talking through a microphone but the speaker it is connected to has an echo to it and, and, you know, when she's telling me this story, she's like, I, I know this just sounds so crazy, but I assured her, her I said, Tammy, you're not crazy. Um, in fact, when I interview others about their MIB encounters, um, this is one of the common aspects they report, the voice. And Tammy says they talked briefly for a minute, and then the man asked her if, if, he, if she was looking for the motel office, and Tammy says yes. I'm going to go find out what time breakfast is served, and the man says, you know, he didn't think that they were open. Um, and then uh, the man starts asking Tammy where she was from. And she doesn't remember giving him a distinct answer, but she does remember asking him where he was from. In fact, she bluntly asked him, are you from Hawaii? Because you kind of look Polynesian. And the man said, no, but I am an Islander. That's all that she recalls talking to him about. And uh, then she goes into the motel office, and when she returns, the man's gone. And she immediately tells her son-in-law back at the, at the motel room, she says, um, you know, I just met the strangest guy. He looked weird, but he sounded weirder. And for what, um, for, you know, it was, it was truly that voice. That's what stood out to her because it just reverberated. And like I mentioned earlier, you know, this is a, this is a common pattern, this, this weird voice. Um, like one report that came to me about a month ago, and it's really spooky. Um, this one centers around uh, Andrew Kelly and his family in the town of Mississauga in Ontario, Canada. It's about an hour away from Niagara Falls, and uh, Andrew and his father were outside their home on a clear night watching the meteor shower in the, the August sky. This is um, around 1993 or so. And, um, you know, Andrew was in his early 20s, and he had, like, you know, an 8-millimeter camcorder uh, plugged into an outlet inside the house. Uh, I think it's, it was the kitchen. And you know, just to provide that steady stream of steady stream of power, so the camera's outside, and as they're looking up, they see this odd set of four whitish bluish lights, oval shaped in a diagonal formation, moving together from one end of the sky to the other end. And you know, Andrew estimates that they were traveling northwest, but he said they were moving at a high speed and there was no sound. And his father um, remarked that it 
didn't look like a conventional aircraft, and it was moving too fast to be any conventional aircraft. And his father should know, given that he worked at the airport back then. Um, the objects went out of sight, leaving them dumbfounded about what they saw. But it doesn't end there, because then the objects returned uh, a second time from the opposite uh, part of the sky towards the direction which they originated from, uh, now traveling southeast. But this time, as they passed, the power to Andrew's camcorder abruptly cut out. But he remembers that it, it wasn't the whole kitchen power that went out, only the power to the camcorder. And um, immediately after these objects passed by, the camcorder power returned. So now this event has left the, uh, the family puzzled. And they went to the house, watched the video that they had captured. Nothing else happened that day, or, or that evening, until the very next day. Andrew is on his way to the Deer Run Shopping Center about mid-afternoon. It's before rush hour. He's minding his own business. Um, you know, if, it's a shopping mall. It's still there today if you're in that area. But to get there from his house, he had to go past the Arendelle Go train station on the corner. And at that time, there was a pathway, but now it's just a parking center. But um, about a quarter of the way down the pathway, Andrew notices these two men about 30 to 50 meters away. And here we go again. They just suddenly appeared on the same path coming toward him. And Andrew described them as dressed like Jake and uh, Elwood from the Blues Brothers. And uh, there's a picture of them, for those of you who are too young to know who the Blues Brothers are. Um, these men are identical in their appearance. Black suit and tie, black hat and sunglasses, you know, the classic MIB attire. But mind you, Andrew doesn't know anything about the MIB phenomenon at all at this point in time. It wasn't until after his experience that he started doing research, and then he learned uh, his encounter was not unlike so many others out there. And as these two men approached uh, Andrew, he notices this weird smell coming off of the men, which he described as smelling like rotten eggs sprinkled with cinnamon. Yum. <laughs> um, one of the guys says, sir, in a very abrupt military-style manner, just to get his attention. Now, at this point, Andrew's thinking, OK, these guys, they're probably Jehovah's Witnesses or, or some religious organization wanting to talk to him. So you know, he feels uneasy about the whole thing right off the bat. Um, but the same man tells Andrew, we understand that there is a videotape that you filmed of some lights you saw in the sky last night. And Andrew responds, yeah, I did. And then the man says, what you saw was nothing. I advise you to get rid of the tape. If you don't get rid of the tape, there will be some serious consequences. At this point, Andrew is just wondering, how the heck did they know so much? He looked at the second guy, who just kept his gaze fixed upon the first guy. You know, the second guy doesn't say anything. He's just occasionally glancing at Andrew every now, every now and again. And uh, Andrew told me that this second guy, he reminded him of how, you know, if somebody starts a new job, they're just like kind of shadowing that person. They're not saying much. They're just following him around. That's what it reminded him of. Um, now, uh, you know, but again, I've, I've heard that in other reports, too. So Andrew asks, uh, how do you know about all this? And the man, the first man responds, it's none of your concern. Just get rid of it if you know it's good for you. And that's that. The men continued on their way, uh, leaving Andrew quite confused, intimidated, and annoyed. Um, Andrew thought about reporting this to the local police, and he didn't. Uh, instead, he decides to follow the men from a safe distance uh, to find out, you know, where are these guys going? Where did they come from? The two men continue on towards the train station. They enter a hallway, go around a corner, and big surprise, they disappear. 
Andrew searched the platform and the media vicinity, and he didn't see them anywhere. So he's like, you know, where'd they go? So Andrew goes back home. He tells his mother about the incident. And, um, you know, I asked Andrew, I said, you know, can you describe their appearance more to me? And he goes on saying, you know, they had an Asian appearance, but they looked very, very pale white in their complexion. Their noses were also very small. It didn't even look like human noses to him. He said they didn't have human lips either. It was more like, like a slit. And he describes it as like putting your coins in a coin machine. Um, that's what the mouth looked like. But what I find extremely fascinating is how Andrew des described the man's voice as being out of sync. He told me that when the man spoke, what Andrew was hearing was not lining up with the movement of the man's lips. Um, it was slightly delayed. And uh, another way to describe it, um, he said it was like a, like a poorly overdubbed foreign film where the English voiceover doesn't line up with you know, the foreign actor's lips. Um, that's what it reminded him of. But there's another aspect in the voice that was quite interesting, too. Just like Tammy from Texas, Andrew from Canada struggled to accurately convey the sound of the voice tone to me. But Andrew described it as almost like an underwater, rusty, metallic type of voice. He said it was like if you're underwater and, you know, in like a swimming pool and you hear like that ladder moving under the water, that's what it sounded like. Like that, that audible metallic, you know, ee sound. Um, to be quite honest, I really struggle with trying to grasp this concept, but he stuck with it. And you know, I just put it in there because I, I still find it incredibly fascinating. Uh, some of you may know, I know Sue Swatek in the background, she, she knows about this, uh, the, the good old Gary Sudbrink phone calls, which uh, she covered. Um, I wrote about extensively in my book, uh, The Spectrum, and you know, I've spoken about it at great lengths before. If you aren't familiar, go to my website, normalparanormal.org. You can listen to them for yourself. I believe this is the closest we have to the MIB voice recorded on audio. Um, however, I sent those recordings to Andrew, and he says it did not sound like that. Instead, he says it was more like that underwater, rusty voice that, that he mentioned earlier. Again, very interesting. Uh, but we have this similar pattern emerging, not just in the odd motor skills, um, but in the odd speech habits as well. Well, the story gets even stranger and creepier. So about a month after his experience, Andrew, his father, and his mother, Gloria, they're all in the living room watching TV together. His, uh, his baby brother, Gordon, who was about three at this time, is upstairs in his crib sleeping. It's the evening, about eight or nine at night. The front doorbell rings. Gloria gets up to answer it. And there at the, tall, at the, at the door is a tall, fat-bellied, bald man with very, very thin arms handing over the baby brother, Gordon, to his mother and then walking away. Gordon was apparently in extremely good spirits and happy to see his own mother, who was quite confused to see her own child being handed to her by some complete stranger. Now, Gloria didn't get a good look at the man before he turned and just walked away down the street. She tried thanking the man, but he never turned back around or engaged with her at all. He just continued on down the street. And since she never got a good look at his face, we will never know if it's the same, it's the same MIB who, who harassed Andrew. But this man wasn't wearing a suit or even a hat. Gloria, you know, stuck with her story. She described his attire as long, dark pants with a white tank top, but she distinctly remembers the way he walked. It was like plodding. And his arms were very, very skinny and very, very long. And she just said that the man was tall, fat-bellied, and bald, and that's all that she remembers. But more importantly, 
How the heck did Gordon, a three-year-old toddler, escape from his crib and make it outside considering that the window upstairs and the front door were all locked? Trust me, they checked on all that because, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a scare for a family. And uh, I find that incident equally as strange. What you see here, that's the actual house. So a lot of these photos are, are the actual places. Um, again, I'm not sure what this means or if it was a warning of sorts, you know, but I, I include it nevertheless. The other thing I'll include in this case is that Andrew also had a long series of doppelganger type incidents. Uh, years later, in 2008, um, his family moved um, and he started working at Vancouver Airport. He said that throughout his time working there, several people would approach him and call him Trevor. Like, hey Trevor, I didn't know you were working today. Or, hey Trevor, why aren't you at work? Uh, but he would respond, uh, I, I am? Uh, then the people would realize, hey, this isn't Trevor. And he said this lasted for a couple of years, from 2008 to 2010, until one day Andrew was outside loading and unloading baggage at the airport, and he sees this guy in this uh, bulldozer type of tractor outside the airport, you know, where the buses and taxis are. And this guy looks exactly like Andrew. In other words, Andrew saw his doppelganger. He did not die, uh, contrary to, you know, popular folklore, but uh, he just thought it was peculiar. And um, to see that here's his doppelganger working at the same airport. Um, but he never engaged with that guy, which, uh, ah, I wish he did, you know? Um, and then he later left the, uh, the area for Alberta in 2012. You know, th these are just some strange stories. And, and again, I don't know what to make of it, but people share these experiences with me. And uh, so I just, I share them with you. All right. Now, the last story I will share with you today is something I've never shared publicly yet. So it's an exclusive for the Mysteries of Space and Sky conference, um, or an exclusive for Anthony Hayes over there. <laughs> um, but I find it particularly interesting because it happened to, well, it happened to my father. And my dad is this very scientific guy, and he should be, considering that his entire career has been spent in electronics. So he's fascinated with how things work. He's very much into modern marvels and powerful vehicles, given that he's worked for big companies like GE and uh, various government subcontractors until he retired. He was developing and testing amplifiers to power weapons technology, uh, including the F-22 Raptor. You know, he served his country with the Navy, and he's seen some, some strange stuff at sea and beyond. But perhaps the, uh, the very strangest thing that my dad ever saw occurred when he was 19 and in college. And he still shares this story with me in the exact same way as when he first told it to me back when I was a kid. And it's one of those things that you, know, you never forget, um, which totally makes sense considering it was a fairly close proximity UFO event. This was back in the summer of 1968 in York County. This is the area right here. Um, I took this photo in about 1998 when I was still a lot younger. And, um, this was uh, about eight or nine at night, and my dad had classes together with his friend Tim. So Tim's driving my dad back home to Glen Rock, where, where my dad lived with his parents, who would be my grandparents. And as they traveled down Rockville Road, dad said, hey, there's a dirt road here, which uh, might be a good place to have our friends get together sometime and hang out. Now, since he had never been down that road before, uh, my dad suggested that they check it out since it was, you know, he was curious about where it went. Um, he said, you know, if it looked like a good place to party, then they would tell their friends to meet them there. And, you know, this is what kids do back then, I guess, in the 60s. Uh, you know, Tim agreed, and 
they took the next turn up the dirt road um, to the top of the hill. Now they're sitting at the top of this hill in their car, you know, discussing things. And um, my dad notices these two lights coming up the hill towards them. The lights are extremely bright, one orange and one white. And my dad can see the silhouette of a cigar-shaped object in between the lights. And the object is very large, and it's moving very slowly up the hill. So he said to Tim, holy bleep, look at this, and he rolled down the passenger side window. Then he notices this thing rising in the sky, and there's no sound. At this point, my dad said it was dead quiet outside, and he didn't hear any crickets or summer bugs or anything. It was just completely silent. Now, some of you may know about the Oz effect. Uh, you know that this is common with some UFO reports and even MIB reports, this absence of all sound, including background ambient noises. And when he told Tim that, the adrenaline, the adrenaline starts flowing through both of their bodies. Tim tried to turn around to get out of the area as soon as he could. He didn't want anything to do with this. Meanwhile, the object came down off the hill and started going up over the woods and then down into the woods. And my dad says the object went behind the trees and disappeared. But by that time, the two of them were driving down the dirt road as fast as they could because they were just scared. My dad said, um, quote, it was a feeling of curiosity and fear all in one. It was one of the scariest moments of my life, end quote. According to him, what caused the fear was when he rolled down the window and he didn't hear anything. And, and he's just seeing this object, you know, rise over the hill and then go over the trees. And at first, Dad thinks, you know, it's a helicopter, but it was completely silent, so that's impossible. And since it was dark out and the lights were so bright, you couldn't see what the object really looked like, except for this cigar-shaped uh, silhouette, which the lights, you know, illuminate on both sides of, of the object. And he said that the lights were very bright, but consistently lit. No pulsating, and it just moved very, very slowly. And my dad said he got the impression that it was going to land in the woods because it was hovering so low as it came up the hill and went you know, over the woods. It barely even cleared the tops of the trees by no more than 10 to 20 feet. And he wasn't, you know, he was sure that the object landed in the woods. And if the two of them hadn't been scared at the time, he says he would have went right back there and, uh, you know, investigate. Instead, they went on, you know, uh, or they went back later on uh, looking for trace evidence with, uh, with friends of theirs to see if the object had in fact landed in the woods. And my dad said he felt strange because, you know, when he went back there, he was expecting something, something to happen, right? You know, he's amped up. He, he thought something strange was going to happen. Nothing. They didn't find any trace evidence. Um, and he was puzzled because he's like, I was sure this object went in there. But since there was no evidence, he thought, okay, well, I guess it didn't land there. Here's another panoramic view of the area with the three photos stitched together so you can, you know, kind of get a better idea of, of where the location was and where this object presumably landed. Well, this is the original newspaper clipping that was printed in the Sunday News on August 4th, 1968. And sure enough, there was my dad's story, along with his friend Tim, and the caption back again, UFOs sighted in two areas of York County. Uh, the newspaper article goes on to say, at least seven people from two different sections of York County have reported seeing one or more unidentified flying objects in the past two weeks, according to information supplied to the Sunday News. The people called the objects um, that they saw flying saucers. And the article said that my dad's encounter was reported a week ago Thursday, which would have been Thursday, July 25th, 1968. It goes on to say then, um, Tim Burwagger from New Freedom and a friend Kent, Kent Bamforth from Glenrock sighted a UFO hovering over some woods just off Route 216 near Faust's dis Distillery. They watched the object for several minutes and decided to turn off Route 216 onto a dirt road and try to get closer to the object. 
The article mentions, as they drove within a few hundred yards of the hovering saucer, they were uh, able to observe that it was swinging back and forth over the small stand of trees. It had orange and white lights on its sides and appeared to be about 50 feet in diameter. They continued to watch the object and became almost hypnotized by its movements. They said they were unable to get out of the car and they felt that they were fortunate in that respect because suddenly the craft started moving in their direction. Now, why did this story make it into the news? Uh, well, his friend Tim was a part-time reporter for the Sunday News. And, um, you know, my dad knew the editor and, you know, he was in the, the newspaper office, you know, frequently just hanging out with Tim. And, um, you know, because of Tim's position at the paper, he told his boss about this UFO sighting and what they saw that night, and the paper decided to print the story. Before this moment, Dad was neutral on the subject of UFOs. He never gave him much thought. You know, he said occasionally, ah, you'd hear talk of UFOs in passing, but you didn't really hear about it that often unless you read about it in the newspaper or saw, saw an article somewhere, which according to him was extremely rare, at least for his town. But after this experience, he gave the subject more thought going forward. Uh, now, about two weeks after the news story uh, ran, a family in Hanover contacted Tim by phone, claiming to have more info about the UFOs and more specifically, what the two of them saw that night over the woods. So Tim set up an appointment and agreed to meet at their house in Hanover. He asked Dad if he wanted to go along, and Dad said okay, and my dad invited his girlfriend over to meet with the family. So you have the three of them going to meet this random family that called Tim. When they arrived at the house at about seven or eight at night, they were greeted by a husband and wife who looked quite young, um, my dad said, and their two kids in their early teens based on my dad's recollection. And the family briefly introduced themselves by name, but my dad doesn't recall what their names were. He just remembers the family looking eerily similar to one another. He says that they were all very, very tall with the same dark colored black hair and unusually pale skin. Here we go. Another commonality with the looking alike and unusually pale skin. Um, as they followed this family in through the front door, my dad remembers the very small environment as they quickly found themselves right at the dining room table. Uh, the husband and wife wasted no time in asking them about what they saw that night. There was no small talk. It was just right to, what did you see? And after sharing with them what my dad and Tim had seen, the husband and wife then you know, brought out two or three big photo albums filled with what my dad describes as a lot of aerial photography of unidentified flying objects. And it was explained to him that these were Air Force uh, planes that had taken pictures of UFOs in the sky. And dad said that there were lots of these pictures, including groups of UFOs in different formations. And some of them said classified, which my dad thought was suspicious. Now, at the time, he thought there was no way anybody would have access to this kind of, you know, info, unless they were in the Pentagon or took pictures themselves. So dad asked the family why they had all this info, and he, he remembers that they gave him like an excuse, but he doesn't remember exactly what that was. Um, he, you know, he wasn't paying attention to what they were saying, but he was just, you know, preoccupied with these photos, because he's like, you know, he's, he's not accustomed to this like we are, you know, he, he's like, whoa, wh what? Um, but some of the more interesting items my dad was shown was, uh, was that of purported alien beings, including one that he remembers quite vividly. He said that one of the alien beings looked like uh, a man with blonde hair and had a laurel wreath, you know, similar to what like Caesar wore. That's, that's what my dad said. Um, 
the family gave more background as to who this alien being was, but again, you know, he doesn't remember it in detail. All he remembers is seeing this photo of this humanoid being from the head down to about three quarters of his body. But after seeing these alien photos, you know, my dad questioned their validity, right? He's like, you know, this is just so absurd that this random family would have all this classified info and be showing them pictures of supposed alien beings that he began to think that this was, you know, he was just being shown like a bunch of hoax stuff, right? And I asked him, you know, maybe the family showed him the photos, you know, as like a comparison tool to check what, um, you know, if it was similar to what he had seen in the, in the woods that night. My dad didn't get that impression, but he did get the impression that they were somehow connected to the event in the woods. He says, you know, quote, they wanted to share this information with us for whatever reason, end quote. But the more time he sat in the house, he began to notice something really unusual. He began to observe that the family's eyes were all the same, like really dark and black. And I, I wasn't ex exactly sure what my dad meant by this, so I, I mocked up a representation, which you see here, you know, just to confirm, is this what you witnessed? And my dad said, no, it didn't look like that. It looked like this. Now, it wasn't until later in the meeting that my dad noticed their eyes looking like this. And it seems that he was the only one who picked up on it too since he asked his friends after the meeting. He said, you know, didn't you notice that their eyes were all the same and completely black? And they said that they hadn't noticed because, you know, they weren't paying attention. My dad said that they weren't there very long, only about an hour or so before they left. But as they're leaving, the family suggested that if they wanted to meet again and discuss this more or in greater detail, they could. Tim said that they would be in touch, but dad told him he wasn't interested in going back because of this. Um, you know, made him feel very uncomfortable. Now, he says that there is a chance that Tim may have gone to see this family again, but he never discussed it with them. Either way, about a year or so later, Tim began to deny and discount the whole UFO event ever taking place to begin with, which really upset my dad. It really ticked him off. And to this day, he, uh, you know, he's still a little, little angry about it. And uh, he still doesn't know why. You know, his friend, who he was there with that night, would suddenly and completely discount the whole thing especially after having someone who would obviously back him up because he was there too, not to mention going through the, the trouble and telling the editor about it, publishing the story, and meeting with the family to learn more about what they saw. It just doesn't make any sense unless either A, he couldn't take the pressure or even ridicule from the event, which yeah, understandably, or B, Maybe there is a more sinister aspect to this, which seems to be the common modus operandi of the MIB, that you didn't see anything at all. But today, you saw a lot of content, and I thank you for sitting through it all. Um, I presented you with some things that I hope you will take time to think about. And I'm not gonna stand here and convince you on whether or not to believe these stories to be true, but all I'm asking for is for you to at least consider them and to consider that all of these phenomena, including the men in black and other strange people encounters, are just part of the spectrum of high strangeness events. Now, you know, we've covered a lot of ground today, um, so I don't know how we're doing on time. It's right at four. Um, I know we have a panel discussion. I don't know if you want to do questions, but either way, if I don't get a chance to speak with you today, um, go to my website, normalparanormal.org, and there's a contact form on there, and you can get directly in touch with me and share your experience. I look forward to it. Thank you.